Well, good morning. I, uh, too, greet you in Jesus' name this morning. We're glad for the presence of every one of you. If you would, turn with me to um, 1 Corinthians 11. I, uh, I wasn't anticipating preaching here this morning. The plan was that Dennis was going to be here this morning and he was going to bring the message, but he called me last week and informed me that with his health issues and so on, he felt that it wasn't wise to come. And so thus, I'm sharing this morning and, and, uh, I have to admit I struggled just a little bit what to share. Um, and that's, maybe I should say that's shame on me. Um, you know, this is, this, what we're commemorating here this morning is the most important thing that happened in the history of mankind, I would say. And, uh, and I guess it shouldn't really be expected that we say it any other way. Um, you know, the, the story and the, the theme that we're going to look at this morning is, uh, there's really no way to put it any other way. It's one story and one reason and one, um, one practice. I am, I am interested, you know, it interests me that the thing of communion, um, that's the one thing that no matter how differently it may be practiced, the meaning of it, the, the, um, the way it's spoken of, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, while that may vary from one denomination to the next, one church to the next, that is the one thing that in all of Christendom that it is recognized and practiced. And so here we are again this morning, and we're going to practice this again this morning. So let's read uh, verses 23 to 26 here out of 1 Corinthians 11. This is kind of just uh, right in the middle of a passage here, but there's just a few thoughts I want to take out of this and then we'll move from there. This is Paul speaking. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So there's just four things I would like to um, pull out of these few verses, um, and then we'll move on to the rest of the message. So why, um, why, why do we practice communion? I see four things here. So we do it because we are prone to be forgetful people. And um, I think several months ago I, I waxed eloquent on this particular point, but maybe I'll do it again. Um, forgetfulness, did you ever think about it this way? Sometimes we, we bemoan the fact that we are forgetful people. And that is, that can be sort of a, sort of a fretful thing. You know, my memory, it, it irks me that I have to write things down if I want to remember them. And I'm, I'm really scared someday I'm going to forget something really, really important and it's going to really bite me. But in some ways, um, forgetfulness, did you ever think of it this way? It's actually a blessing. Sometimes that we forget things, you know, think about it. Think about some, some painful event that you have gone through or, or something that has happened to you or a loved one or whatever. 
that's extremely difficult. Isn't it a blessing that time somewhat is a bomb to that thing and we tend to forget it? And so those, those bad things that happen don't seem as bad a year, five years, ten years, twenty years. And sometimes those things that we don't even know how we'll get through when we're in them, we look back and we say, well, you know, we got through that. And it, it and, 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 you know, the passage of time helps us to, uh, somewhat of a salve to the disappointments that we face. However, it works exactly the opposite. I can only imagine the, um, the meaning of the crucifixion, crucifixion and what that meant to the early church, especially those people that had witnessed it, like the disciples and so on. I can't imagine, you know, the the going through that. It, it had to mean something to them that there's probably no way that it could mean the same to us. I would imagine perhaps that's the case, the actual event. And because of our short attention spans and 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 the uh, the fact that unless we experience something, it isn't quite as meaningful to us. I grapple with this thing. You know, do, do I actually understand what the death of Jesus means for me personally? Do I grasp it? And, and I guess I'm, I'm afraid I don't totally understand that. And I, I'm afraid I don't appreciate it the way I should. I want to, but I, I, I think that's why Jesus said you have to do it. You know, you do this. Repeat this because you, you people will forget. And we do forget. I had to think of the, um, the uh, you know just 21 years ago or 20 years ago I guess now the the 9/11 attacks in the twin towers and over that particular event there was a slogan that you'll you'll see even today we will never forget we will never forget really we'll never forget well maybe we won't forget but you know there's people here sitting in these pews this morning that understand well what I'm talking about that do not remember the twin towers. Um, uh, event. They don't remember that. They weren't here. Um, so they, they, uh, it, it doesn't mean as much to them as it perhaps does to me. I will never forget. This I will never forget is where I was sitting, the exact spot, what I was doing when I heard about this. I was just shocked and I will never forget where I was. So in that respect, I suppose I won't forget. But, you know, there's so much has happened and transpired since then that you know, I don't think about 9-11 very much at all, to be honest. There's, there's other things that are perhaps more important. And so we, hear, we are here this morning. We are attempting to remember and consider again uh, what Jesus did on the, on the cross. The other thing I see here in these verses is um, the word often. He, he talks about this, as often as ye drink of it, and as often as ye eat this bread, etc., I see the, um, the, an importance placed on the value that we place on this event will dictate how important it is to us and how meaningful it is to us and how maybe often we do that. And I grappled with that a little bit because I do know that it's well documented in the, in the early church that communion was held every Lord's Day. It, it was. And, and today there are groups that do that still. And, um, you know, and, and it's more than just the Catholic Church. I know that. And I, I, I say to myself, was that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? Um, to me, you know, um, doing it frequently could lend itself to maybe being a bit too routine. So it seems like, um, 
Maybe it could be done too frequently, but apparently the early church didn't feel that way. They did it often, very often. And um, I think the, uh, the thing we could ask ourselves is, how much do we anticipate this? How much, how meaningful is it to me to be here this morning? Like, um, what would I easily exchange this event for? Um, how easily would I skip this? And I realize that um, in this world we live in, um, we, we're busy people. And sometimes we don't make it to the communion service. But I, d- I would like to encourage us uh, to, as much as we can, to be here and to, um, and to take place in this. And I'm happy that our, our church house is well filled this morning. But again, you know, because of the length of time that has elapsed between the actual event and today, perhaps the meaning isn't quite as sharp as what it could be, perhaps. The other thing I see in these verses is in verse 26, where he says, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, we don't often think of it this way, but the fact that we are commemorating this this morning, also we are doing it to once again remind ourselves that Jesus is coming again. There will be a time when we will do this for the last time. It's a possibility that this could be the last time. It really is. Um, Jesus is going to come again. And again, Jesus knew us as people, and he, he gave different examples, different parables, different teachings in the Gospels that he said, I, I know that there's going to be a length of time elapsed between the time I go back and the time I come again. And in that interim, because there's so much time going to elapse, you're going to forget that I'm coming back. And you're going to become busy and sidetracked and and uh, you're going to begin to dispute with your brothers and sisters and, and things like this. And he said, the world around you is going to affect you in unhealthy ways and you're going to forget that I'm coming back and some of you won't be ready when I come back. That, that was Jesus' words in a nutshell. And so this service, it should help us to look back, but it should also help us to look forward and to remember that you know, there's a reason we do this, and sometime there will no longer be a reason to do this, because we will we will be with our Savior, we will be with Jesus, and uh, I just do not think that there will be communion services in heaven. I don't think there will be. Now, I don't know what all will be there, but if if I read my Bible correctly, this is something we do between the first and the second advents of Jesus, and um, the time will come when we are there with him, and communing face to face. And so we won't have to remember anything anymore because it will be right there. We will be participating in a reality. The last thing I see here, I think, is the, the real reason for our being together here this morning. Verse 26, showing the Lord's death. And that's, that's the obvious, isn't it? We wish to participate in this death with our Lord. And that leads me to the, to the title of today's message, which I've called the crux of the cross. And, uh, that may be a word you don't use real often, but the, the, the word crux means a decisive point. So we're going to talk about the decisive point of the cross, what the cross means to you and me today. What does it mean for a Christian? Turn with me to Leviticus 16. 
quickly. I'll probably be doing a little bit more reading this morning than what I typically do, but I thought maybe it would be good just to um, remind ourselves again exactly what the cross does mean to us. Leviticus 16 it is the um, it is the um, format for the Day of Atonement, and I would just like for us to just read a few verses here that talk about how this went down. If you were an Old Testament saint, this is what happened year after year after year. 16 verse 1 of Leviticus. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered, that they, when they offered before the Lord and died, the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put a holy linen, and he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and he shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments, therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other one for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself and he shall make an atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. And I'm going to stop reading there. We could read on. But now let's go over to verse 29. And this shall be a statue forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you. Ye shall afflict your souls by a statue forever. And I don't know that I have to enlarge on that, and I could have read more. But you get the picture here of a very methodical and detailed day of atonement. It was a ritual that had to happen every year. And Aaron had to take care of himself and his house, and he had to go through these very specific details before he could enter behind the veil 
and uh, and do his things there, and then come out and offer this offering for the um, for the children of Israel, and the the whole thing with the goats and so on. Um, you know, we could ex- we could wax eloquent on that, and I'm not going to do a lot, but you get the picture. It was it was quite quite an operation. Now let's turn to Hebrews nine, and we're going to get a different picture here. Let's um, start at verse, oh, I don't know, let's start at verse um, 6, maybe, of chapter 9, Hebrews. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into holiness was not holiest of all, was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. But Christ, being come in, being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now let's just go over to chapter 10 and read a few verses here. 10.1 For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not of the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers once purged should not have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither has pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And I'm going to cease reading there. Again, 
that the magnitude of the difference is pronounced. So year after year after year, the high priest had to do this this Day of Atonement thing. And beyond that, there was different offerings and sin offerings that were either voluntarily or involuntarily brought throughout the year to, to, to atone for the sins of the people. And the Hebrew writer is pointing out that, you know, that did its job in its day, as we read in chapter 9, but it was not the answer. It was not the ultimate answer. And so because of what Christ has done for us, what he did on the cross, that sacrifice that he made, today all of our animals are at home in the barn. Uh, very few of us have sheep. Few of us do. A few of us are silly enough to have goats even. But we don't bring them along to church with us, do we? And you know, I, I don't, I don't even, I don't understand, I think, fully grasp, um, exactly what a blessing it is to live on this side of the cross. Not only do, do I, can I leave my animals at home today, but I can be in a place where God can dwell in me and I can live above sin because of that. And, yeah, words almost fail me to, uh, to express the, the magnitude of the difference between the Old and New Testament. But here we are. We are here today because of what Jesus did on the cross for your sins and mine. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 read like this, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all transgressions, trespasses, I'm sorry, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Again, do we understand the, um, the power and weight of those words as Paul wrote them to the church there at Colossae? Speaking about the identity of the cross now, how do I identify with the cross of Christ? This was a big deal to Jesus. He repeated it several times when he was here on earth. I'm going to read you several verses here that um, repeats the idea, different circumstances, different books. Matthew 10:38 reads like this. Jesus said to his disciples that day, He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. In other words, you want to identify with me? There's only one way, and that is if you carry a cross. Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Now, that's one more uh, piece of the puzzle. If you want to carry the cross, first of all, you must deny yourself. There's too many of us that want to take a cross, but we don't want to deny ourselves. And Jesus said, you can't have it that way. The denying of ourselves must come first, and then we can take up our cross. Luke 14, 25 to 27. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come after me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And then he closes it with this, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And we can follow that thread through the, the epistles. There's different times this comes out where you want to be a follower of God. I want to be a follower of God. I got to figure out what this cross-bearing thing looks like. So what did Jesus mean here? Do I understand this the way that I should? 
You know, in context, I think the crowds that surrounded Jesus were mesmerized with him. I mean, it said that his teaching was powerful. He, he taught with authority. His miracles were things that people hadn't seen before. When they listened to him preach, they'd say, we never heard a man speak like this before. That, those very words were said at one time. He was willing to um, take on the, the powerful religious um, crowd of his time. Um, and he, he did it in ways that, that could not be refuted. But on the other hand, he was, he was a very kind person. He wasn't a rough, rough person. He was extremely kind. He took a lot of interest in the down and out. And his ability to, to hold his ground with the learned doctors and lawyers of his day was probably indeed interesting. So the crowd, this is what the crowd saw, and this is why crowds followed him. But the crowd also knew something about crosses, too. They lived in a society where occasionally they would see this, and it was nothing that was was desirable. As a matter of fact, I have to believe that if I would have lived in those days and I knew that there was somebody crucified outside the city gates, I have a feeling I'd have used the other gate. I just can't imagine that I would have really wanted to walk past something like that. And for sure, a cross was not something you volunteered for. Like, you didn't do that. And Jesus here is saying, I want you to voluntarily take up your cross. You know, a cross meant one thing, and that was sure death. As I contemplated this, you know, there are those people in the world, I don't know how, how uh, prolific this particular thought is, but there are people that would, that would suggest or, or put out the argument that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, he just went into some kind of a sleep. They put him in that grave there and that, you know, he just got quickened together in some way. Have you ever heard of this? You know, this thing that Jesus really didn't actually die. And, and I don't know if there's many people ascribed to that, but you do hear that sometimes. Well, I just took the time to once again read about the gruesomeness of crucifixion. And according to people that supposedly know more than me, and there's a lot of those people, but they, they say that roughly 10 minutes. If you were nailed to a cross, you had about 10 minutes, and you were dead. And the death was sure. I mean, there was like no way you could live through a crucifixion. And perhaps that's a reason God chose that death for Jesus, that, you know, anybody that knows anything about crucifixion really can't argue with the fact that Jesus died on that cross. People knew that. You didn't get crucified and live through it. Like it, it took more than a 911 call. And I think Jesus is trying to get through to you and I today, his followers then and now, that we must die to ourselves. We have to figure out how that is done. And he gave us, he gave us examples of people that did and people that didn't. And, and my mind went to the rich young ruler as I was studying this. He was a man that wished to follow Jesus. And Jesus affirmed him in many of his things. But he said, there's one thing. There is one thing you need to put on the cross yet. And the, the, the rich young ruler was not willing to do that. Jesus said, whenever he was lost that day there, and his parents were trying to find him, and they finally found him there in the, in the, um, with the doctors and lawyers and whatever, he had a sentence for his mother. 
or his parents there, and he said like this, he said, How is it that ye have sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? I, re- I really believe that Jesus' life modeled what he expected us to live as crucified lives, what we as followers are expected to do to emulate our master. And that means that we must be about our father's business. And we must do it in the way that Jesus taught as he was around on earth and teaching. You know, I really think the reason many Christians, and and I would say even myself at times, do not have the power that I wish I had, is because I am unwilling to follow the way of the cross that I know I should follow. And I would rather figure a different way to do it. I'd, I'd, I'd like to figure a way around the cross, something not quite as painful, something a little bit more easy. You know, there's many of us. All of us are interested in the work of the cross. All of us are very happy for what Jesus did on the cross, what we read about in Hebrews. But it takes another level of interest to be interested in the way of the cross. But the work of the cross will only be as good to us as we are interested in following the way of the cross. I don't believe today that the cross is something that we just talk about, something that we theorize about, but I think it's something that we need to have in real life, and it is recognized by action and not slogan. You know, I, I, um, I was thinking about this a bit. Today's, in today's world, we, um, we have a crisis when it comes to the trucking industry, don't we? You know, we're reading about this and we're experiencing this, and Justin and I were just talking about it last night, how we, we personally dread this coming spring because we're being promised very poor service from the trucking industry, and that's a lot to look forward to. And um, just on a whim, I... I looked up several of the websites of the trucking companies that we have used in the past to um, for seed deliveries and so on. And it's interesting to me some of the some of the little one-liners that go well along with the trucking companies. You know, they they promise speedy on-time delivery. You know, this lofty this lofty ideal that you're going to get your stuff on time and it's going to be what what you want it to be and it's going to be undamaged, etc. But the fact of the matter is, this past year. Very few of those trucking companies lived up to their, up to their, what they say they're going to live up to. They didn't do it. And I had to think, you know, talk's cheap. It's what actually happens that counts. And I don't care how many one-liners, I don't care how lofty the promise, until it actually, I experience it, that's what counts. Same way with the cross. We can sit here, talk about it in church. We can say, yep, that's it. This is the way it should work. We can read the Bible. Yep, we agree with that. But until we are willing to do it, it means nothing to us, and it means nothing to those around us. So what does the cross practically demand in my life? Well, I would just like to read to you a few verses out of Philippians 2, very familiar verses. It goes like this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, so this, we should listen up. This is, this is the mind of Christ Jesus. And Paul says, this is, should be your mind too. So let's pay attention to what he said. 
Philippians 2.6 says like this, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. All right, so he's equal with God. But here's what he did instead. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, there's probably a lot we could expound on in other places in the New Testament about what it means to be crucified, and that would be proper and appropriate. But I'm just going to focus on three things out of these particular verses. If we're going to live a crucified life, we can we can no longer be worried about our reputation. You think anybody that was ever nailed to a cross was thinking, boy, how can I salvage my re- reputation here? You know, i got a reputation i got to defend. That was the last thing on their minds. Their reputation was gone. They were on that cross because they had done something extremely bad in the eyes of society, and they were nailed to that cross, and their reputation was completely gone. And I struggle with this. You know, I I want a reputation. We want a reputation, don't we? And, And I hope you're understanding me here. There is such a thing as a Christian reputation, and I'm not saying we should we shouldn't have that. But what I'm talking about is, you know, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, Jesus, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judges righteously. Can I commit my reputation to Jesus, to the Lord? Can I live in a way that in the eyes of God, I'm living righteously? And that I can let wrongful accusations run off like water. That's not what we're, that's not what we're wired to do. And that's not what we're told to do by the world. And yet that's what Jesus modeled and that's what he requires of us. So you know, when I have no reputation, when I'm no longer worried about my reputation, I'm willing to admit my faults when I have them. I'm willing to admit that. I'm willing to serve Happily in very humble ways. I'm willing to be happy when you succeed, when the credit goes to you. I have to possess a humility that when I have opinion, an opinion on a thing, that I'm willing to listen to yours as well. You know, the way of the cross leaves absolutely no room for a big ego. Paul told the Roman church, he said, the mark of a Christian is that you will condescend to a man of low estate. It was said of Jesus that he came to mess around with bruised reeds and smoking flaxes. And James tells us that when a rich man comes into your assembly and the vile man comes into your assembly, make sure that you pay as much or more attention to the vile guy as you do the guy with the ring on his finger. All right? That's the kind of thing you identify with the down and out. You don't worry about your reputation anymore. That's the way of the cross. Number two, it says in Philippians that he took on him the form of a servant. A crucified life is filled with servants. service, is it not? I had to think of Paul when he was on that road there to Damascus. And he was struck down there by the light. And his first words were, Lord... What would you have me to do? 
suddenly his 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 mission to to Damascus had totally changed, and it was God. What would you have me to do? And what did God tell him? He said, "Well, you know, you get up and you go into the town there." And um, I think he told him what house to go to. And after a while, he tapped a man and he said, "Now you go, you go visit Paul here." At that time he was Saul. And so that happened, and then if you follow through the New Testament, we find we find uh, Saul spending some time uh, by himself as he got reoriented and, and uh, made his his uh, plans with the Lord there. And then Barnabas took him into Jerusalem and uh, introduced him to the church and the apostles there. And then Paul had his missionary journeys, etc., etc. Do you think Paul knew... When, when he asked the Lord on that day, on that road to Damascus, Lord, what would you have me to do? Do you think he knew at that point where this would take him? I don't think he did. But he was willing one step at a time to follow the Lord. He was a servant of God. Now you could say maybe Paul's service was a bit more pronounced than um, many of us, and it was. But what I want to stress is that he followed God. He was a servant of God. And likely our service will not be quite that flashy. But you know, our families need parents. That service. That service to God. Our churches need people who will willingly serve in various functions. That's a service. We have neighbors that need friends, right? It's a way we can serve God. We have businesses. There's people out there that are happy to do business with somebody that will be honest with them. We serve God in that way. And you know, we, we find ways to serve God that um, maybe we don't even think about it. But think about it this way. What if, uh, what if you're sitting down at a restaurant and uh, the waitress that has served you um, has done a poor job? She hasn't done very well. Does that waitress deserve your tip? She does. He does. I, I would say that in those ways, you can serve, you can speak to the world that you know what? It's not about me. It's about you. I want you to succeed. I'm here to serve you. You know, we serve when we do things that we don't like to and we don't want to. But in our hearts, we know somebody has to do it. And we take the attitude that it may as well be us. Number three. And lastly, we, we live a crucified life when we become obedient unto death. When we have the attitude, I deserve nothing, nothing at all. This probably does not hold the, the, um, this passage here in Philippians probably does not hold the, um, the weight, I guess I'll put it that way, that it probably would have to a, an early church Christian. Becoming a Christian then could well mean that you would face a physical death. But what does it mean to our generation? You know, we're not facing that necessarily currently, although we certainly could in, in, the, uh, in the future. Well, I would like to read a verse to you from uh, out of Galatians 6.14. Paul says like this, But God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I think a very real way we can die this death that is talked about, the death of the cross, 
is when we die to the world. You know, the world is a charming, it's a flashy place. It's full of things that allure us, and it is a big problem that we have, that we want to mix the two. We want to have some of both. You know, we don't want to quite cross over completely over to the cross. Just let me let me have a bit of the world with that. There's a very interesting verse in First John, Third John rather, first two verses read like this. And the, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now here's, here's what John says to him. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospereth. I'm always fascinated by that verse. This man's soul was in such good shape that John said, I wish your bodily health would catch up to your soul. And I had asked my question, if if my bodily health today would be on par with the health of my soul, what would it look like? Would I be going out here on crutches? Would I be a quadriplegic? Would I even be alive? We have to ask ourselves these questions. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, if that's if the answer is yes to any of the above, why is it that way? And the answer to that is, I have not yet died. I have not yet experienced the cross in my life. I have not died to the world. I don't know what it is to be a servant. I have not appropriated the grace of God in my life as I should have. You know, the cross leaves absolutely no place for the world. Paul asks a pointed question to the Corinthians. He said, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, let's summarize this. Today we commemorate the cross. But let's allow our identification with the cross to also be our walk, okay? Let's not, let's not divorce the two. Let's walk the way of the cross. We've looked at this. And as we commemorate what Jesus has done for us, let's ask ourselves the question, am I participating in that in the way that I should? I trust Paul's testimony in Galatians 2.20 is ours today. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son, by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And I trust that is our testimony this morning.